and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. We are so excited to have you with us listening to the podcast. We really appreciate everyone who is tuning in and sending us a note, either on social media or emails or text or however it is that you're finding me and telling me that you're listening. It really does mean the world to us. And today, we really do have a special guest for you. Megan Phelps Roper is our guest on the podcast today. She is somebody who I met a couple years ago, and right away, I could tell that Megan is extremely thoughtful, extremely bright. She is somebody who is intentional with how she sees the world, but her story was not always that way. So you're going to learn about Megan and her background with the Westboro Baptist Church. She grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church. Her family started it. Uh, her grandpa actually founded it, and most of her family is still uh, are still members of that church. And if you don't know about the Westboro Baptist Church, they travel around the country basically protesting, and they call it picketing, different avenues that support the LGBT community, uh, the Jewish community, uh, and many other communities that they believe are sinning. So they are an interesting group, and you've probably seen them on the news uh, pretty much everywhere they go, there are usually counter-protesters that try to drown out their voice and their message. They don't hold back with their messaging. They are very much shock messaging. Uh, they hold signs that are pretty tough to read and can definitely be seen as hateful. And so Megan was uh, indoctrinated into this community, into this family, and that is all that she knew for a large part of her life. But she ended up having the bravery, having the courage to leave. And she left her family, she left her community, uh, she left all that she knew behind. And with the knowledge that she may never be able to talk or see those people again. So Megan is going to share her journey with us and it is quite a story, quite a journey. And she gets into a lot of the vivid, tough details with us. And I'm just so grateful that she uh, makes herself so vulnerable and is sharing her story with the idea of trying to make the world a more empathetic place, trying to get people to understand the different ways and solutions that you can use to try to have conversation around hate and around uh, tough dialogue. So she's really an expert when it comes to how do we set our mind for A, going into a hostile confrontational environment, 
And B, how do we set our mind to truly listen to others and learn from others and eventually try to help people shift from maybe what they see to how maybe they should see the world? So Megan doesn't mince words. She's amazing with vocabulary. And she is someone who's extremely passionate about everything that she's learned and everything that she wants to continue to learn. And she definitely is someone who will not come off as preachy. All that she does is share her experience and share how she came to leave her family and came to leave everything that she knew and and what that process looked like for her in the hopes that we can do that and help others who might be on a similar path to her. So this is rich in nuance. It's rich in content. It's rich in dialogue. It's just a very, very rich conversation. And Megan is somebody who I'm just so grateful that she bumped into my life and that we developed a relationship enough that she felt comfortable to come on the podcast. She's also doing some amazing things. She has a TED Talk out there that has over 4 million uh, views. She's just finishing a book. She's got a movie coming out. She is a busy person. She speaks all over the country where she tells her story and talks about empathy and, and how we can really listen to each other and the power that comes from interacting with each other. So uh, she's just so intentional with how she lives her life. And she just gives such a rich and nuanced perspective to a side that many of us just block out. Many of us just... Uh, sort of think are delusional or unintelligent or ignorant. And she creates context to a lot of those people that I think it's just such a, a useful practice to go through. And I'm just so grateful that she was introduced to me and she really changed how I see the world. So I'm hopeful that she will maybe shift how you see the world just a little bit. So without further ado, I present to you, Megan Phelps Roper. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. We met, I believe it was like two years ago. And uh, just to give people a little backstory, so we really met at a dinner uh, where you were being honored. And we sat down at a round table. There were probably eight to 10 people there. And I happened to have the good fortune of sitting next to you and your boyfriend at the time. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But, um, and I drilled you and grilled you <laughs> for a good hour and a half, I want to say. Um, and, and, and you were just so generous with, uh, your time, but also, uh, your willingness to be vulnerable and willingness to share your story and be open. And I walked out of that dinner really, I, I I don't say this often, but I really felt like my life was changed. And, um, I think we should all experience moments like that, where we have conversations that just alter our perspective a little bit and alter how we see the world. And part of the purpose of this podcast is to get people to start thinking about, Hey, where can I shift? How can I see the world a little differently so that I can grow as a human? So I want to just start there. Um, and if you could just give us some background on on your story, and I know it's a, it's a long story, but give us sort of the Cliff Notes version and, and the bullet point version of who you are and, and your background. Okay, um, so I grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, with you know in Topeka, Kansas. Um, there were eleven kids in my family, uh, and I basically lived on a block that was you know surrounded by my my family, mostly my aunts, uncles, and cousins, uh, and people who belong to the church. The church only had about 80 people, and they are very well known for this cross-country, um, and actually around the world via the internet, uh, campaign against LGBT people and Jewish people and basically anybody who is who is outside of our, our group. Um, so I grew up, you know, I started 
the picketing started when I was five years old, this campaign. Um, and so from the time I was five until the time I was almost 27, I was an active member of the organization. I was baptized when I was 13. Um, I was very committed. My mother was the de facto spokesperson. So I was just very much in it. Um, and then when I was 24 in 2009 or 23, um, I got on Twitter and because of conversations on Twitter, um, I was able to, and it wasn't just those conversations, but they allowed me to see things differently um, and to see people in a different light than I had been taught to see them. And uh, I ended up leaving the church in 2012, November of 2012. And since then, I've been uh, trying to figure out, you know, to, to make a new life, basically just starting life all over again. Um, and it's definitely been a process. Um, but as difficult as it's been, it's also been incredibly um, just amazing to me. I, I would, if you would have told me, you know, five years ago that I would be where I am today uh, and the, the perspective that I would have, um, I just, it, it just, it's, it's insane to me. And I, I still, I struggle with words you know, for the words sometimes, but um, yeah, I just feel like every single day, my mind is blown by the fact that I am, well, do you, I don't know if <laughs> you want me to go into this. Um, well, well, I actually want to go back a little bit. So yeah, good. Um, I would love to just find out your perspective when you are picketing. I, I just want you to give people what your mindset was then uh, and just share sort of how you saw the world back then. And, and we'll bring it back up to the present and get a sense of how you see mm -hmm. the world now. But I would love okay. to give insight into that because I think that is something that a lot of people can't really empathize with or understand. Right. Um, so this is one of the things that, uh, that I've been talking about a lot these past four years, because I found, you know, the same thing. People never really understood that we were doing what we were doing because we believed that, you know, picketing was the fulfillment of the commandment to love thy neighbor. Um, so when that commandment first appears in the Bible, it's in Leviticus 19 and it says, thou shalt not hate thy neighbor in thine heart. Um, but thou shalt, uh, in any wise rebuke him and not suffer his sin upon him. So that rebuking your neighbor. So basically we saw um, the world is divided into two types of people, the Jacobs and the Esau's. These are the, the Jacobs are the elect, the chosen ones, people whom God loves. And then the rest of mankind is irrevocably doomed to hell and there's nothing they can do about it. So our mission was to go and preach the truth um, as that was the only hope and it was the mechanism that God used to call his people. So we thought no matter what it seemed like to other people, we thought that we were loving our neighbor. Um, so I, I very much had, you know, this view of us as, you know, the, the only good, you know, truly good people in the world. And the fact that I was surrounded by this, you know, family that was, as flawed as we were, you know, and, and as difficult as that life could be, I knew that they were loving and kind. They are incredibly intelligent and hardworking and diligent. And I, there was so much good there. Um, yeah, the, and so the, they're the values, right? Like, uh, mm -hmm. hardworking, kind, loving, those are values that, that are still instilled in you today. Would you say that those come from family come from that background? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think people find that very confusing uh, just because of the image of them in the media. And, and it's an image that they have propagated. So I have a friend who said that Westboro is responsible for their own PR. Um, and that's true. Um, but then we can talk about that this more later too. the, the reason that they do what they do. Yeah. I mean, why they take these like very sort of hostile tactics and, and, it's definitely wrapped up in, because this was the early 90s, it was 1991 was when our uh, picketing first started, which is obviously like the sort of the 24-hour news cycle. And my, my grandfather saw it as, you know, using this very provocative language was a way to get people's attention, to preach the message. So it was very important that we, that we had people's attention, even if it took that kind of like very provocative, hostile, antagonistic, you know, tactics to get it. Yeah, so the idea there is that we are going to do whatever it takes to spread the gospel and spread what we believe to be true, and we have an obligation to love thy neighbor and stop them from sinning. Is that sort of the uh, overarching thesis? Yeah, we could. We knew we couldn't stop them from sinning, but it was to warn them of the consequences of sinning, so that their blood wouldn't be on our on our hands. That's that's how it's phrased in the book of Ezekiel. Got it. And then the, I want to also get into the mindset of when you're on the picket line and, you know, anywhere you guys would go, there would be counter protests, right? People that would tell you all kinds of, I'm sure, nasty things. And I'm sure you would see love, but you would also see all kinds of hate from in their eyes of hating you for what you stood for. Uh, what would you do to set your mind for those types of confrontations? Uh, I, I Like take me to before you're going to picket and, and what you would be doing or saying or, or how you'd be setting your mind for those, uh, you know, confrontational experiences. Right. right. So we, I mean, I, I was listening to another podcast and you talked about the difference between the mindset in the preparation versus performance yeah. and in the preparation like that, we were literally reading the Bible every single day, you know, talking about uh, world events in light of Westboro's understanding of the scriptures um, you know, memorizing, you know, Bible verses. And, you know, again, I, I was five when we started. And when you're put in a position to have to defend these ideals that the rest of the world absolutely hates and rejects, um, for the most part, um, uh, there's just this sharpening process, I guess, is a, is a way I would put it, um, where, you know, because generally, it's the same questions, the same ideas, the same verses. And, and so, you become, uh, you know, just very adept at wielding these Bible verses uh, in a way that people don't expect. A lot of people, you know, that we would encounter on the picket line didn't know the Bible. And, you know, when they did, they would, you know, there's a, you know, sometimes a tendency to sort of, you know, just look past or like, you know, brush past the, you know, the, the more you know, extreme or, you know, hateful or, you know, I don't, I, what, the, what, the harsh versions, the harsh parts, um, you know, that what a lot of people would consider harsh, I should say. Um, and so, and the fact that we focused so much attention on those things, um, it, it just, it was like it, there, nobody ever had an answer that, you know, in other words, I just felt like all the time when we'd be out on the picket line because of all that preparation, because of the, you know, especially by the time I'm in my twenties, just decades of, uh, of of reading and repeating. And of course, I'm also listening to my grandfather give interviews, my aunts and uncles, my mother, like she, 
like I said, she was the de facto spokesperson and I worked very closely with her. So I was basically marinating in these ideas all the time. Um, so by the time I'm on the picket line and I expect people to be angry and hostile, you know, I, we, you just had to be prepared for it. And, and I, I was, um, so that, that preparation and reading the Bible and you know, sort of stealing myself against, um, you know, knowing what people were going to say and to just have to feel deep inside me that what they thought didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was what God thought. And I, the only way I could understand God's thoughts is, you know, what the Bible says and how it's understood by my parents and my loved ones. It's such an interesting dynamic because you had to have utter self-belief, right? Like your self-belief in what I'm doing is right had to be so strong because like you're saying, the rest of the world saw it as the opposite. So you have this amazing self-belief that what you're doing is right. Um, and then you also just talk about experience, right? Like you've got these, you know, the 10,000 hour rule, like you had yeah. the experience put in to acquire that knowledge. And we're not necessarily, I'm not even getting to the right or wrong piece yet. Um, but just mm -hmm. the, the notion of, I was ready for that. I knew how to handle it. I had my family, I had support, right? The people that I loved most were telling me, we've got your back. And it's almost like, I would imagine you put like a bubble around what you're doing. And are you able to sort of, the word that's coming to mind is dehumanize, but that's maybe too strong of a word. But I would imagine you're able to just uh, ignore or deafen out the noise that the counter protesters would have because you just were so staunch in what you were doing and why you were doing it. Yeah, we were really, really adept at uh, sort of turning everything that other people would say um, into a, a win or a point or a counterpoint for us. And so there, it, the sense of you know, being part of this, you know, because again, the church you know, doesn't really say we are the only church in the entire world that is telling the truth, but the, it's it's framed, the whole debate is framed in such a way that that is the only conclusion, you know, that you can come to because, you know, my grandfather would spend so much time attacking other points of view. Um, you know, here's why the Methodists are wrong. Here's why, why the Catholics are wrong, the Lutherans, the, you know, Jews and, and just on and on. Um, and so the sense of being part of this, you know, divine, larger than life institution. Um, and we, <laughs> Gramps would always say, um, there's just something so uh, there's so, something so great about knowing that you are 100% right, and that like my it's really funny because when you say self belief, I I didn't believe in myself. Like I I thought you know while the church has this you know this very staunch position that they advocate for, um, we felt about our individual selves. You know we are the chiefest of sinners. We are you know worse, you know, less than worms in the eyes of God. Like we, you know what I mean? So it's this, this very humble, I felt very humble, even as I adopted this position that was so incredibly just inherently arrogant. Um, and this is something that I you know, couldn't see until, until much later, but. That, that dynamic is, is so fascinating to me. And I talk about this, as you said, with the preparation mindset and the performance mindset. It's like one of the things I talk about is humble in preparation, but confident in performance. Or, you know, I take it to some extremes, uh, like we're neurotic in our preparation, but we're narcissistic when we're performing. Um, in the sense, I would imagine you guys were super humble when it came to reading the Bible and going over scriptures and, and constantly learning and constantly growing. So that when you got onto the picket line, 
there was, this is a hundred percent fact. Does that resonate yep. with you? Is that? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and the, even yeah, as I we know. were, perf- sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, even as we were performing, even as we were standing on the picket line, you know, executing these, um, you know, doing these pickets, um, even then we, we were, we felt humble in the sense of, you know, this isn't our gospel. Like this is God, this is divine, this is unquestionable. And so it, even, even as we were executing, it was still, it, it still, we still felt humble. It's, it's, it's such an interesting dynamic. And one of the things that I think is fascinating for me is we tend to think in, in sort of black and white and we sort of lack nuance with a lot of our discussions and a lot of our conversations. And that's just my belief. And I also think we tend to think of things as good and bad and, and sort of like it's a movie and there's a good guy and a bad guy and that's it. Um, and I think one of the takeaways for me is that even though I think my belief is what you were doing was quote unquote bad. Um, mm-hmm. Understanding a how you set your mind for that performance, I think there are takeaways to be had there for all of us as performers. And b that you could still have these amazing values um, that transcend um, maybe the message that you were delivering. So that idea that I was still hardworking, that I was disciplined, that I was kind, you know, I think those are things that most parents would want to instill in their kids. And so I think that push pull is one of the reasons I'm drawn to you, because I think we often make a mistake as a society and say, no, you shouldn't learn anything from that person because they're bad or their message is bad, or you should, or we go the other way. We just glorify people and, you know, make them heroes. And, don't realize that, yeah, even though they are doing heroic stuff, they're still flawed um, in some aspects of their life. And I think the nuance there is such a big takeaway for me. And that was one of the things that I was just blown away by when I met you is, you know, you're very clear about my family is loving. They are kind. It comes from a place of love. And I think that message to me is something that we all need to remember. And that doesn't mean that we just um, lay down and just accept what people are saying or how they're saying mm-hmm. it. Um, you can still disagree. Um, but that having the dialogue, once we shut down the dialogue, I think everybody just goes to their separate corners and um, that's when stuff really starts to manifest and stuff starts to really get ugly. As long as mm-hmm. we see people as people, we can still have a conversation and try to try to shift. Um, so yeah. any, any thoughts Absolutely. on all that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Everything you just said, like I have goosebumps. <laughs> like that's exactly, I mean, I gave a Ted talk um, and it came out back in March uh, and it was just about this, this exact dynamic that you're describing. Like, so it, there's this um, new thing and maybe I, I, I see a lot of things on Twitter, which is, is used, I think more, more left um, and not just more left, but generally like even more people who are more extreme on the left. Um, and so it, there's this there's this sort of prevailing you know notion that if you engage somebody with a bad idea, say white supremacist, then you are normalizing it, or you are you know giving them a platform to say things that they shouldn't be allowed to say. You know that the proper response to people like this, like these antifa stuff, you know the proper response to people we disagree with, you know is to attack them, physically attack them, not allow them to say say things um, that we don't like, that we think are, not, not just that we don't like, but we absolutely think are destructive and wrong, like white supremacy, um, anti-Semitism, things like that. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I understand where that comes from, but it just, 
it, it paints one, it paints people with such a, like a broad brush. You can take somebody who has a bad idea, you know, and it, and it, gosh, I'm sorry. I, this is just one of those things I feel so strongly about that I almost can't articulate it the way I want to articulate Which is it. It's rare for um, you because you're so articulate. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. That, <laughs> I'm excited that we're going down that road of where you're, you're struggling to find the words because to me those are the conversations that are so mm-hmm. intriguing. Like I talk with a lot of people a lot, and you can sort of tell when things are canned or things are just set. Mm-hmm. But I like those conversations when it's not, and we have to think about them. And this conversation that we're about to have, I I have things running through my head right now. So I'm excited to go there with you because I think we often just live above the surface. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times we got to go dig deeper to go find out solutions that are are more complex and more complicated. So let's, let's go there. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, So the, again, like I understand, you know, there are people who do not want to have these conversations. You know, like, and so there are people who say, like, you know, black people should not be required to deal with white supremacists and try to convince them of their humanity. I 100% agree. I totally understand. I don't think it's anybody's obligation or direct responsibility, like, to, to say that, you know, everybody should do this. But I don't think, I think right now, you know, anybody who's, who advocates for the idea that there should be a conversation, that there should be a dialogue, um, it's attacked. So I think, um, you know, they, they say, so back to my story for one second, just for an analog, you know, the, the guy who, um, it was a Jewish blogger named David Abitball who found, you know, he was one of the people who I first encountered when I came on Twitter, I came on, you know, to attack him and Jewish customs and values and, you know, to tell them that God hated Jewish people and, and all and this. Just, just interject there. So you were going on Twitter to represent the church, to represent your family. And yes. it sort of stems from this idea that your, your grandpa had the foresight to say that the news media is a way to get attention and to sort of put a microphone to our message. And exactly. so you're using social media. You're saying, oh, I can do that in this new age thing called social media. And I can go on Twitter and get people to think maybe a little differently or shift how they see the Exactly. World. Exactly. It was just another megaphone for our message. Um, so that's why I got on. And David was one of the first people that I attacked. Um, and, you know, at first he responded with a lot of hostility, which, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I absolutely expected it and, you know, it didn't mean much to me. But he pretty quickly realized that, you know, I was a human being and that I really believed in the goodness of what I was doing. He never, he never stopped sort of contradicting me and trying to, you know, convince me that what I was doing was wrong. Um, but it, the tone became much more sort of friendly mocking instead of just openly hostile and angry. Um, and so this is one of the things when people say, you know, you know, people of color shouldn't be forced to have these conversations. Again, I agree. And yet there are people, you know, people like, I don't know, have you heard of Daryl Davis? No. He's this, um, he's a black man who um, has converted some, I think it's 200 and some uh, members of the KKK to leave the organization and to not be white supremacists anymore. Wow. And, and part of, part of the power of, again, I'm not saying this as anybody's, you know, in any individual's responsibility, but there is such a unique power in you know, somebody like, you know, me as a member of Westboro or a member of the KKK or, you know, any member of one of these extremist groups being put face to face 
with somebody who is or should be the embodiment of everything that they have been taught to despise and to realize that this person is not what they believed that, it, that they were, that they are just a human being and that they have come to their, their positions um, you know, in just the same natural way, you know, they grew up in a certain environment and they were raised in a certain way with certain beliefs. And then they had certain experiences that brought them to this point. And there is just such a, the need to, um, the desire to shut down these conversations and to say, oh, that's not my job. And, you know, it isn't, except as human beings, you know, what, what, and I, this is, it's been part, again, part of the reason I'm struggling here is because what, I, what I'm advocating for is empathy for people who seem not to deserve it, mm. you know, for people who are doing things that, that genuinely hurt other people. And so let me, I, let me ask you this. Yeah. When does empathy go too far? When, when where's that line, right? Because I, as a, as a Jew and as a grandson of a Holocaust survivor, the place my head immediately goes to is Hitler, right? And, you yep. know, was there too much empathy for Hitler, right? So, so like, I think that's where people start to say, like, you know, in my mind, there's, there is a case to be made for deport those people, like send them to Guantanamo or like, just, and, and, you know, there's a, Right. Right. If, if you have someone, yeah, yeah. if you have like a Nazi who is saying we should kill these people, which by the way is different from your guy's message at Westboro. It's not to say right. that your guy's message at Westboro was any, was soft at all. It was, it was some mm -hmm. pretty tough language, but when is that line where empathy is no longer a good thing and, and maybe it's empowering or um, helping the person to then create, you know, to then have their drive their car through a mass protest. Like, where, right. where does, where do we, cause I, I have this, this push pull with empathy and, you know, I talked to someone yeah. yesterday who basically his opinion was empathy is, is not good. Um, and when we, when we, when we are constantly trying to understand that person, we, um, you know, allow them to become a victim and allow them to sit, you know, just constantly go back into that cycle of doing the same thing over and over again. And that's insanity. So when does empathy, I guess the question is, when do we, mm -hmm. where do we draw the line on empathy and, and, and just say, no, this, this is not okay. Right. So I think that the Supreme court has done a really good job of drawing the line. Uh, and that is when it comes to violence or threats of actual violence, I think that's, that's a hard line for me. I, I think if you're not, because again, by the time, but here's the thing. If you're not, if people don't have an outlet, you know, people are going to come to bad ideas. This is, is the way I, I think about it. They're going to come to bad ideas, sometimes from their parents, sometimes from, you know, their community, their you know, society at large. Sometimes people read books with bad ideas and are compelled and convinced by them, you know, and, and um, some people argue themselves into bad ideas. And so as long as they are not violent or threatening actual violence, the focus should be on convincing because again it's right convincing them of the wrongness of those ideas and of the rightness of our own right and and if because the, the thing is and this is one of the reasons that one of the reasons that david kept engaging me he did not believe that he could change my mind but he thought it was important to to contradict and argue against effectively argue against my ideas lest other people be convinced by them 
So it wasn't just for me. It was for the rest of, you know, the rest of the people following both of us. You know, you know how Twitter works. So somebody's following both of us. You know, they would see these conversations. Um, and so what I'm saying is when when people get to if because before they get to violence, um, their speech is a way of, uh, you know, conveying ideas that does not uh, it's an outlet is what I'm saying. Um, and when people feel like that outlet has been shut down, you know, you just, you mentioned a little bit ago, you know, people going into their corners and that's when things really start to manifest. I think that's what you said. You know, the, when people, you know, get stuck in, in these, um, in these ideologies. So, cause where, where is a white supremacist who can't, who has been disallowed to speak and to advocate for ideas that he believes are good and right. Uh, where is he going to retreat to? He's going to go right back to this community of white supremacists, this echo chamber. And you don't we don't want that. We don't want to push people further into extremism. We want these bad ideas because what are we afraid of? These these bad ideas. We we have good arguments. We have you know, history that shows us why these ideas are wrong. And so by refusing to engage them and say and to show, you know, why they're wrong, um, I think. I think it, 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 it gives people the idea. So it just, you know, again, back to Westboro for a minute, like it, the fact that, you know, I would, I did not encounter it. It took Twitter, you know, this, this extended conversation with David on Twitter, um, you know, for, for me to be able to see for the first time in my life that we could be wrong about something, you know, the fact that there wasn't effective arguments you know, against what we were saying. And, and again, I'm not blaming other people uh, for, for this dynamic, for, for failing to, you know, convince me at a younger age. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> I feel, I rest, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, contributed to that. The big one being, you know, Westboro puts out all these, um, these abstruse doctrines on these three to five word, you know, antagonistically worded, picket signs such that nobody really understood what our doctrines actually were. Um, right. So like so, God hates a slur for gay people, right? Like that would be right. Like what, exactly. What you would do. Right. Exactly. And, did anyone ever try to hug you, smile at you? Like as you're, as you're in that picket line, was there love there? Or you said, did, was Twitter really the place where people, you, you started seeing other people as people? So it, it was really Twitter, and it's it's funny. I mean, it's a little bit funny because again, the the dynamics are a little uh, are a little are a little bit strange when it comes to Westboro. So yes, we would see people with signs that you know proclaimed you know loving sentiments, but we were trained from a very young age to see those people as essentially delusional. Mm. You know, they're claiming to be loving. So there's a, a Bible verse that says, "Faithful are the wounds of a friend." but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So we're specifically warned uh, against the kindness of people outside the church, um, that they were delusional and not really well-intentioned. Um, so, but, but the thing about Twitter was that it, it was the closest I had ever been to people outside the church. It was close in a way that, you know, that you would might take for granted. Like I'm seeing, you know, pictures of people's children and watching these kids, you know, grow up over a period of, you know, months and then years and, you know, pictures of their food and like them interacting with their friends and all these things that made me uh, realize, it made me see them in a different way. Um, and then also, as I mentioned with David, so these, it, it allowed, cause like if, before this, 
you know, you could talk to somebody on the picket line and the pickets lasted for maybe a few hours at the very most. Um, and, you know, then you're off in another city picketing somewhere else. And, and so the, the conversations and the understanding never really developed. Um, whereas on Twitter, you could, you know, develop this rapport over time and, you know, this, you know, extended conversation that let people really get into the nuances of our ideas. And so this is what happened with David. So it, over time, you know, him being able to understand exactly what we were saying and why and the justifications for all of it and the Bible verses we used, you know, that is what allowed him to really understand where, where I was coming from so that he could effectively, you know, counteract those arguments um, and to find the inconsistencies. And, and I think I think you said something earlier that was he was able to poke fun or, or make jokes was there mm-hmm. like I'll just tell a quick story and then we'll come back to you. So I was recently in Israel and I was there with a nonprofit called Peace Players and Peace Players mission is to use basketball to have people see each other as people. And mm-hmm. so they get these, you know, uh Muslim and Jewish or Israeli and Palestinian uh kids and they get them to play basketball starting at like 8 years old and they just bring them for basketball and then they happen to just play with each other and uh what happens is through basketball the people start to realize that they have more in common than than they are dissimilar but one of the uh amazing moments for me was we were out at a bar and I was with a couple of the coaches and they were you know young coaches and they had already gone through this process and they'd become best friends and it was a, a a guy and a girl and the girl says to the guy like we're about to order some drinks at the bar and the girl says to the guy like oh you can't have any the jewish girl says it to the muslim guy and <laughs> she was busting his balls right like mm-hmm. you know you, oh yeah you, you're not allowed to drink because you're religion and mm-hmm. it was at that moment that i realized that their friendship was real and authentic because they were able to make fun of each other and they were able to be lighthearted with each other. And they even said to me, yeah, we can't say that to people we don't know, but we have a relationship. So we can, Mm -hmm. we can say those things to each other. And, you know, it was one of those moments for me where I realized like, once you get to a point where like, if you have a best friend or a family member that you just love unconditionally, um, you're able to say things to each other and not judge each other. And mm-hmm. uh, understand that they're coming from a place of kindness or love or, and when you get to that place, it is, it's just an amazing human experience. And, um, Absolutely. so, so I, I, I would assume part of what you were able to do with David was you start seeing each other as human and maybe you would have some smart ass remarks or whatever it would be. Mm-hmm. And that opened the door, the laughter, the smiling, that, that human emotion opened the door to a real conversation. Whereas when we are angry, our decision-making goes down and we are cluttered in our mind. And it's just hard to see anyone because it's such an emotional experience. Whereas when we are smiling or we are open, we can start to have clarity and have discussion. So um, that, that crystallized for me as you were talking about the relationship with David. No, yeah, it's absolutely true. And, and like, it's, it's so funny that the things that we connected over, like we were making fun of you know, these, uh, you know, videos on YouTube and like, I don't know, Gossip Girl and I don't know, just, just random things. And, you know, such that, you know, when, and there's just something about that, that is so, so compelling when, cause again, I was taught to be wary of kindness. And so even though I was wary of kindness, even though I was wary of David, you know, specifically of, you know, him as this, you know, Jewish guy and, and, um, 
you know, his attempts at humor and stuff, even though I was specifically wary of it, it was still compelling to me. And there's just something, I think it's the same thing with that, um, you know, actually he tweeted me the other day in response to, um, to somebody else's message. And he said something like, oh, I find that, uh, it's having those relationships with Nazis makes it really difficult for them to stay Nazis. Mm. And, and so again, I understand that uh, why somebody would not want to do what David did, somebody who just, you know, couldn't handle it. I understand that. But this whole, the idea that we should demonize anybody, anybody who does engage that way and be suspicious of them, um, or, or anybody who says that we should do that, you know, as, as, you know, trying to, you know, push the burden, you know, of, you know, the oppressed shouldn't have to articulate and, and prove their humanity to their oppressors. I 100% believe that. And yet I don't know another way. And so maybe if it's not the oppressed themselves, maybe if it's not people of color, but it's allies who are, you know, engaging this way, that's a, that's a, you know, that's, that's also good. Well, I think um, I think your point is basically to say where's our solution and how do you mm-hmm. how do you make it better? And I think that's just a really good question. I always say seek solutions. Seek solutions. Yep. And yep. um I think your point is like, hey, this is my experience. Here's how I shifted. Um and and here's how 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 I how I changed. Can you give us some more color into what led to you leaving? And you know, I know this is a a re- we can't like uh, underplay this. Like leaving for you means something different than maybe someone, maybe those people who left the KKK. I don't know. I don't know them, but leaving for you, um, just walk us through what that meant and, and how that, how that goes down. Right. Um, so leaving Westboro, um, it, you know, going in, you know, as soon, whenever you make the decision um, or if you're contemplating it, you know that you will never have, you know, any relationship with anybody else in the church. Um, and because the church is mostly my immediate and extended family, my, you know, my, my grandfather um, is the one who started the church in 1955. And um, most of the church is, you know, his, um, you know, a, 10 of his 13 children uh, and their children and their, their spouses and their children. That's about 80% or so of the church. Um, so the only people that you've ever been allowed to be close to um, are now never going to speak to you again. You know the sorts of things that they're going to say about you um, in your absence, that they're going to demonize you to everybody else. So, you know, again, I had um, 10 siblings and seven of them are still at the church. Eight of them were still there when I left. Um, so you just know that these relationships are not going to exist any longer. Um, all of the things that we have been taught about people outside, about how evil and delusional and stupid and, you know, bad intentioned and selfish that they all were like, that's now the world that you're going to be thrust out into, um, in my job, you know, and this isn't true for everybody in the church, although a lot of people who are in the church also work at the family law firm. Um, and so, you know, my home, the only home that I'd ever lived in. So my, all of my almost 27 years was, you know, know, in this, you know, this house with my parents and my siblings. And so home, job, family, uh, your entire belief system, you know, it's just all gone, you know, as as soon as you, as soon as you leave. And so you're just trying to 
basically build a new life, um, a new worldview, a new ideology um, from scratch. Give people some perspective of the educational background of your family members. And you mentioned the law firm. I think that's one of the most interesting part of this is I think a lot of people have a, a, a stereotype or a perception of who your family is. And I think it's, it's pretty off. Right. Um, so I'll let think a lot of people think of my family as hillbillies, rednecks, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, I think 10 or 11 of my grandparents, of my aunts and uncles, my, my mom and my aunts and uncles, um, went to law school. Um, my grandfather essentially required them and their spouses to go to law school. Um, and then, uh, so there's, a lot of law degrees, there's master's degrees in, in business and public administration, um, you know, uh, IT, you know, computer, um, computer information systems and healthcare. So that's a lot of the people in the church. Um, most, most of the adults, um, have, um, college degrees and advanced degrees and are incredibly well-educated. So it's not, it's not a lack of intelligence that has led them to this place. Most of them, also grew up at the church um, and sort of it's, it's all that they knew from the time. So one of the things that, you know, people understand that about me is that I was, you know, raised in it from a very young age and I didn't know any other way of seeing, of seeing the world. And even though I went to public school and a lot of people in the church also have jobs outside of Westboro, um, they, (laughs) we, it was like, because, you know, before we went to school, and as we're going to school, um, we're being taught by our parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles um, it, what other people believe and why it's wrong and what they're going to say to you and what you should say in response. So even though we were exposed to these you know, other people from a young age also, um, it was like being inoculated against those ideas. Um, so, so it's... Again, it's not a lack of intelligence. It's not a lack of good intention that has led them to this place where they're doing things that are incredibly hurtful to so many people. It is this ideology that they were taught from the time they were tiny. And even though the picketing didn't start until I was five, the ideology was still there in all its particulars, that the uh, picketing was just sort of the natural um, next step that they, um, you know, that they took. And walk us through the decision to leave. And really what I would love to unpack with you and maybe get you thinking a little differently about this is what did you have to do from a mental standpoint to set your mind to make that happen? Like what was, what did you have to do intentionally to have the courage, the bravery to basically say, I'm leaving my family. There's a good chance I'm never going to see or talk to them again. Um, Walk me through how you develop that courage and that bravery and um, how that all went down. Um, so it's, it's very, uh, man, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll tell you the short version. Um, there were, you know, things that were happening inside the church, um, that if I hadn't been having those conversations on Twitter, if David hadn't shown me, you know, that, that first logical contradiction in our theology and given me some kind of confidence in my own thinking, because if I ever, you know, before David, if I ever, uh, and before Twitter, if I ever disagreed with something that the church said, I just always assumed that I wasn't spiritual enough to understand, 
you know, I would try, I would, you know, I would read the Bible and read the verses and, and try to go along with it. But if there was something that everybody else seemed to be on the same page about, and I wasn't, I assumed there was something wrong with me. Um, this sort of gets at the self-belief part that you said earlier is that there wasn't necessarily a strong sense of self, um, but there was a strong sense in ideology. Would that be, would that be the way that you phrase it? Yes. And a strong sense in the group, like Mm -hmm. the wisdom of the group as being, again, this institution led by God, this group of people that their judgment is unquestionable, um, that was definitely that that sense. This is a random All question. My life. Was there ever something bad that happened to your family where they where you looked at it and said, "Well, that's God sending us for something"? Like, was there ever someone yeah. dying or cancer or heart attack or any tragedy? Not, yeah, not dying, um, but there was like no, no nobody that I was ever close to died until my grandfather passed away a, a year and a half after I left. Um, but. But no, so, but yeah, there were, there were things, um, mostly like illnesses, I guess it, there's, there's been a, you know, a handful of people who've gotten cancer or some kind of physical ailment. And, you know, sometimes it was, um, you know, talked about as, um, just the, a, te- a way of God forgot to test them. Um, sometimes they did think it was a punishment, you know, mm-hmm. that, if somebody wasn't, you know, wasn't acting right, they weren't doing right. And, you know, they needed to heed this warning from God. Um, and, you know, they all eventually, at least as far as I, as far as I know, um, you know, ended up, you know, healed, you know, without, you know, cancer free and, and things like that. Um, but even little things were, you know, like I, one of the things I remembered as I was writing um, this book was my when my sorry my aunt got pregnant with twins um and my mom saw this as a as a warning from god because she had been trying not to have kids and in birth control of any kind so even like you know natural family planning or whatever was not okay um so like you know counting the days and whatever like it, she had said something to my mom about that and so in other words, everything about our lives was on the table to be, you know, discussed and and judged by the rest of the church. Um, so their judgment meant everything. Um, right. So back to the leaving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, the there were things happening in the church that I that seemed wrong to me, and for the first time, because I had that little bit of of um, self belief. I could think this is wrong. You know, it, this contradicts what the Bible says. It contradicts these verses. There's, there's something wrong here. And so, you know, I, I tried to talk to some people about it, um, you know, over time. And then eventually, you know, it, this is like, I don't know, maybe a little over a year into this whole process. Um, I, it finally hit me like, Oh my God, like, what if this isn't the place? Like, the place where God meets with his people. That's how they frame Westboro, right? But they see Westboro as Mount Zion, like heaven on earth. Like this is the only place. And so when it, when that hit me, like I wasn't thinking like, Oh, the rest of the world seems so good and awesome. And I want to go and I'm, I'm attracted to that. It was the sort of seeing the, that my family were human beings, fallible human beings, you know, and, and making mistakes and doing things that I believed were wrong and that I believed were specifically against the Bible, against so many of the principles that we've been taught. And the fact that other people 
you know, all seem to be on the same page about it. You know, I thought, oh my God, like they're, they're wrong about this. What do you think that, of the words? What do you think of the word skepticism? Um, I think it's really important. You know, now I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, of skepticism. I think it's important to, to question, um, not just other people, but our own ideas and our own assumptions. And to, I, so I think, I think it's good. I think it's important. And was that a word that resonated with you at all when you were growing up? Was that a word that was even part of the vocabulary? Oh, not really. I mean, we were, um, we were, it was all about faith, you know, mm -hmm. believing, you know, because it's almost like, you know, there is no evidence, but we're going to believe this because this is what, you know, this is what the Bible says. This is what, you know, how we understand um, it, there was just, uh, now I, I actually have some trouble with that, with that concept. I mean, faith as in believing something without evidence, you know, um, it's a fascinating skepticism and faith are fascinating because we, we tend to think of scientists as skeptics, right? Like they're supposed to be skeptical. It's part of their creed. Um, and then we tend to think of creationists as people of faith. Um, but I am, I'm a blender, so I like to blend things. So I think that we need skepticism and we need faith. And I think when you can blend those two and, and not be blind, be a person of blind faith and not be a blind skeptic. Um, right. But yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to be a, uh, a, an open skeptic and an open person of faith, I think yep. like that's when some really magical stuff happens. And I even see it like with how we use data, like, I think sometimes people say like, oh, data, this is the, what the research says. So that's fact. It's like, well, research is meant to show averages and it doesn't necessarily uh, also include outliers. Um, and then on the flip side of it, when someone says that, no, this is what the Bible says or whatever, you know, theological, you know, mm -hmm. route, route you want to go down there. And they say, well, that's fact. I'm like, all right, well, that's interesting, but there's also this data. So I, I think, I think we often try to pick sides and I I think the blending is where the magic happens at least for me I mean that's when I'm at my best is when I can and I guess this is where empathy I, I do value it is where I can understand I'm like all right I understand that perspective but now I understand this perspective all right here's the best conclusion I can possibly make given with what I know and I think mm -hmm. that blending is 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 amazing um any thoughts yeah. on that Man, it's hard for me to think about it in in like in vague terms like that, like without a specific um, example. A speci yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, because like because I I I said something recently about because somebody said, "Do you still have faith?" And I was like, I said something like about you know faith in in humanity and you know and the possibility of you know improvement and and growth and you know so even though like so some people will look at bad things happening in the world and think oh human beings are just you know screwed messed up and nothing's ever going to you know and i just i don't i don't believe that but i also i also think that sort of lionizing the idea of believing something like because there's no evidence like that's it's i think that's I think that can lead to really dangerous places because if we, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think I get what you're saying too about, I think the, um, you know, blending them because, but you, you, I think you do need, um, you, there has to be some, in other words, like, so if, if for Westboro, like if there were, you know, if there was evidence in the world, things that, and this is, you know, something I didn't realize until after I left. Um, if there were things like if somebody, 
uh, gosh, if there were things, if there was evidence in the world that, that contradicted what they believed about the Bible, even if, for instance, if Jesus himself, you know, came back and was performing the same miracles that he was performing in the New Testament, and, and, and this Jesus said, you know what, uh, the, the whole thing about gay people, you know, they're just people, and these relationships, there's something wrong with them, you know, it's totally fine. You know, that kind of thing, like in the same way that, you know, Jesus changed some things about the Old Testament. You know, he like he used, to, you know, it says an eye for an eye, you know, in the Old Testament. But um, now I'm saying turn the other cheek. So Jesus made specific changes to the doctrine. So if Jesus came back today and made those same changes and made and also said, also, God doesn't hate gay people. Uh, my family would believe him to be a uh, a false prophet. Right. <laughs> and. And like, there's no evidence that he could, that he could give. Cause like, for instance, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, you know, this, a false prophet, if a false prophet comes and even though he's showing you signs and miracles and, and, uh, and showing you that if, if what he says does not comport with what this book says, then don't believe him. He's a false prophet. So there's, in other words, what I'm trying to say is like, I realized that there is literally no evidence that my family would accept that would change anything, even if it came from Jesus himself right. because of this, because of this faith. So what I'm saying is it's that there has to be some, and the, you know, and the thing is like, so they believe that if they doubt the Bible, then they, they don't have faith and they're going to hell. Um, but it's one of those things where I'm like, you don't even have to see it as doubting the Bible. You can see it as doubting your understanding. You know what I mean? There's, they have so much faith in their in their view that nothing can change it, and I think that's a really bad place to be. In. So it's that kind of faith that I have sure. that I think is can be really destructive. Sure, and you know, I I like to say too much of anything's a bad thing, but so is nothing of anything. So right. like, I think <laughs> if we just have skepticism and we have you know too much skepticism um, and we have no faith. I think mm-hmm. I think you're gonna live a pretty miserable life and pretty miserable existence. And, and by the way, when I use the word faith, like I think we often use it with religion, but like to me, mm-hmm. that word it, it transcends religion. Um, uh, and so, like, you know, let's just use humanity, like you said, like having faith in humanity. Like, if I'm just skeptical and I have no faith that you know the person when I lose my credit card is gonna give me the credit card back, uh, I think that's a pretty miserable existence. Um, right. But I agree with you on the other end of the spectrum is if I have too much faith and it's and I have no skepticism then that is to me what your family looks like right and so yep, yep, yep. like to me like it, it works the same way in performance which is like anxiety gets a bad rap like anxiety bad confidence good and I'm like no if we have no anxiety at all we're gonna drink and drive we're gonna cheat on our spouse and you know we're gonna shoot up heroin like it, yeah it's like, like the anxiety makes you do things to get better to improve and to and to yeah and, and, and confidence if we only have confidence and we don't have anxiety then we're enron right and we're hubris and right. we are made off mm-hmm. right like yeah like that's what hubris looks like so like for me we, we that saying like too much of anything's a bad thing I, I kind of agree with but so is this notion of if we don't have anything of something else like if we just write it off as bad then we mm-hmm. also are missing out on an opportunity. So um, I want to go back to your story because your story is is honestly, it's just fascinating. So how, how do you set your mind to say, all right, it's time to go. 
Um, right. You have like your Jerry Maguire moment, right? Like who's coming with right. me? I'm leaving. Right. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but you're on a podcast <laughs> yeah, with someone who is mostly in sports. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I bring everything back to sports. It's a problem um, or, or it's great. a good thing. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah, so like you have this moment, like, I mean, I remember when I was like 12 years old and me and my brothers were going to, you know, uh, we were going to leave and, and walk out of our house and run away and uh because our parents were making us eat mashed potatoes and we didn't like mashed potatoes <laughs> and so we, we go and get like our sports trophies and our baseball cards and all our precious valuables um and, and we, we pack them up and we go outside and it's raining and all of a sudden it's like pouring and i don't know if this is a sign from god or whatever it might be uh but we like make it to the driveway and we were like, this isn't going to work out very well. We go back in and I don't know if we probably didn't eat mashed potatoes, but um, <laughs> so that was the extent like of our, of our running away and our parents don't make fun of us to this day. But for you, I mean, like I'm, I'm shedding light on a, a subject that, you know, is a decision in your life that completely changes uh, what direction you go. And we're not having this conversation if this doesn't happen. So to right. make a decision of this magnitude, what goes into that? And you've sort of painted the picture for us that people have impacted you. And I think you sort of hinted on this notion of like, you started seeing things a little more skeptically um, and, and, and a little more ways of a skeptic. And you are now saying like, if I'm supposed to love thy neighbor, is what I'm doing really love. Like it's, it's how I'm, right. it's how I'm, is my message really of love. But I want to know, like, take us to that day where it's like, I'm leaving. Um, and yeah. the emotion that comes with that. And also how you set your mind for that time. Did you visualize? Did you like see yeah. that coming? Did you plan? Did you organize? Like what was yeah. that escape like for you? Yeah. Um, so it was actually a process. Uh, it took about, I mean, it was about four months or so between uh, the day that I first thought of leaving and the day that I actually left. And when I the first thought of leaving, I thought I had to leave that second. Like, mm. and it, it was fear that, that drives that, right? Because it's, I mean, there, there's so much fear and guilt and shame, you know, that comes with, with, with questioning at, at that level. And I thought that, you know, if, if I'm even thinking about this, then that means I don't belong here. So like literally the moment it occurs to me that maybe this isn't the place. And I, I was painting a wall with my sister um, and I literally turned to put the paintbrush down um, wow. and I, I turned around and I saw my sister there. And, you know, at first I thought like, cause we had been talking about all these, you know, problems that we had seen in the church. Um, and she was the only one who, you know, would, would, um, like not just say, oh, just go talk to the elders. Like they'll straighten you out. You know, she would say, yeah, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem right. Um, so I thought like, how can I leave without talking to her? But up until that paintbrush, you have those thoughts of this doesn't seem right, but you don't ever cross, it doesn't cross your mind that I need to go until you're right. You're like, you have this moment, this thought pops into your head. You're like, Oh crap. I don't believe in this stuff. Um, I need, I, I need to go. That is that. Yeah. Is that it wasn't even, I don't believe in this stuff. It was, I don't believe in all of this stuff. Like mm -hmm. and it, cause it was the way that the church is like, it's, it's, it's all or nothing. Right. You, you cannot agree to disagree. Like we thought that was blasphemous. Zero so, sum game, right? Like that's it. It's, it's, yeah. so you're all in or you're not in at all. Exactly. Yep. And so what does it do so for it you when you talk about this experience and put yourself back to that paintbrush? Like, can you remember this? Like what colors on the wall you can like, how vivid is yeah. this moment? In Incredibly. Your life? incredibly vivid. Um, it, just incredibly vivid. I, I had, you know, I, I, I had to write about this. Um, 
in this book that I finally finished a few weeks ago. Um, but that, you know, writing, you know, there's two chapters sort of devoted to this, you know, um, this period, this, you know, a little over a year and a half or so, you know, of my life. And there's, I left out so much, but I, so much of it, I, I remember with such like visceral, and I remember the feelings and the images and the, and it's, it's because, you know, you asked about, you know, did I plan and organize before I left? Yes. Like I, I am such a, a detailed person and I'm incredibly sentimental. And so once the thought occurred to me that I might leave, like my brain just went into this strange, you know, mode where like everything, everything mattered. Like I started writing everything down. I took so many photos and videos and voice recordings. And I was asking tons of questions, you know, of my parents and my grandparents and, and, you know, all these things that I knew I would never have access to again. Like, so the moment I leave, like all of this stuff is going to disappear. I'm never going to be able to ask my mom, you know, like about, you know, how she and my dad met. I, I knew some, I knew some of these stories, but they, I, I wanted all of a sudden, I wanted to know everything and it, just every part of it. Like I just was, it was terrible and, and writing about it was terrible and remembering it, you know, now, like I, I can, I can do, you know, I can do it, you know, in the, to a certain extent without that, you know, the terrible feeling. Um, but if I, if I go very deep, like it's, it's, it's incredibly distressing and, sure. and really, really hard to, um, handle. But I, I, I remember the colors on the wall and, you know, what I was wearing and the music that was playing on the stereo and all this. Um, so it was, is, is attention uh, to detail something that, uh, the church taught you, um, like I, you have a way with words and vocabulary that is, I think a, a gift and maybe a gift saying it the wrong way, because maybe it's something you acquired. Um, but the attention to detail that you have, is that also a product of your upbringing? Um, I think in a way, just because they, you know, they, they definitely, um, you know, focus on, yeah, everything again I said everything mattered a second ago for my grandfather it was the same thing with the bible like so he would you know craft these uh, incredibly intricate complicated sermons based on a couple of verses that if you were just reading you would just like skip right past and it wouldn't it wouldn't mean much to you um so I think I think it's definitely something that I was taught but also just just memory like my if you think my memory uh, and attention to detail is anything like my mother like she she has this insane ability to remember. Like if you give her a date, she can basically tell you what she was doing and what she ate, you know, with relative accuracy. Like it, she, there's, it's incredible. There's cool research on memory that it, it can be improved and that, you know, if you work on it and you use it, and I would imagine a family full of lawyers, like you guys uh, were able to uh, pass the bar and, and do, do certain things. And um, anyway, mm -hmm. so that all makes yeah. sense to me. So you have four months that, you're contemplating walk us through what the, what that experience is like and then just take us to the night where or the day where it, it's time to go uh so those four months like at the beginning like so i i didn't talk to my sister you know the day after we were painting um and we pretty quickly decided you know over the course of i don't know maybe a couple of weeks or less um that we were going to stay we were going to stay and try to fix the things that we thought were wrong because it was like you know we, again, it wasn't everything we disbelieved. It was just certain points that were very important and that we absolutely believe were wrong. They were unscriptural. So if we could just convince, you know, other people in the church, then we could stay and not have to go through this 
terrible thing. Um, and so that was our goal for a few months. Um, and then, so this was like, it was July 4th, the painting day. And then it was late September, early October when we actually decided like, unless something major changes, we are, we're going to have to leave. But then the question of like, okay, but when, like we kept pushing, pushing, there's always something else that we needed to do or that we needed to, you know, figure out before we left. Like we couldn't, in other words, pulling the trigger on actually leaving. Uh, we just kept pushing it back because we were hoping that whatever, that some, you know, huge major thing would happen that would save us from these terrible plans we were making. Um, and so that's basically where we were um, for a little over a month. And then at the beginning of November, um, one of the guys in the church sent out a message saying that they were going to record these videos, sign movies, um, uh, which is each member of the church has to choose a sign and then you know, sit in front of a camera and explain what this sign means and all the Bible verses related to it and why we hold it and things like that. Um, and we had done a round of these a few years earlier. So this was another another round of signed movies that we were going to have to do. So Grace and I signed up, my sister, I should say. Um, we signed up for these, you know, to do one of these signed movies. And we knew that we absolutely could not do it. Um, we weren't going to do it. So we knew that by, I think it was like November 20 or so, um, was when they were going to film the movies. We had to leave by then. Um, and then we we also reached out to, to another uh, couple in the church who they were new, very new. Um, and they, we thought they were being treated really terribly. Um, and anyways, the short version is we reached out to them to see if they were going to leave. And um, one of them ended up uh, actually telling our family that we were planning to leave. Mm. So the day that we left, it was, it was like just a week and a half or so, I think before, Less than, no, yeah, less than that. I was like, um, so before the signed movies, I mean, and we, you know, my, my dad came into our room and, um, into my room and, uh, you know, confronted us with this letter and started packing. Dad say you should leave or, or you say we're leaving? No, we said we were leaving, um, you know, they, there was a moment where, you know, we, we could have, you know, I don't want to say pretended, but like said that we, you know, we're trying to stay because we were, but at that point I had, I just, I, I lost all hope. Um, I thought that the way things had changed in the church, like before, you know, before all of this, you know, everybody had a voice, you know, if the way that the church functioned was, um, uh, if, it, every vote had to be unanimous. So if we were going to make some important change or something, um, everybody had a vote. And unless every person consented, um, they wouldn't take any action. And the way that it had changed after this was that this group of eight elders, these um, older married men, uh, that if you if you couldn't convince you know one of them, then you, you had no voice. And in other words, all the things that I thought were wrong, I thought that they weren't going to change and that even if they did change, it would be years down the road probably. And I could not live that way. I could not do the things that we were doing and say the things that we were saying what's um, dad's, anymore. What's, what's dad's reaction when, when you start packing the bags and, and it's time to go? Um, 
he, he helped, he helped us, you know, he, he wanted to understand why he, you know, wasn't, you know, mean or anything or, or cruel or, you know, trying to stop us or anything. Um, that's, that's not how the church functions. It's, it's very much a, they call it a volunteer army. Um, so if you don't want to be here, you don't belong here. Um, and it's really funny because almost like having that, having that freedom, like phrasing it that way and framing it that way, um, it, that almost makes it harder to leave. You know what I mean? Cause it's like this, you want to prove that this is, you know, you're, you're here because you want to be here and, you know, you're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And, and you're tough, you're tough and strong enough to, exactly. to handle this. What do you think to of handle, tough, what do you think of toughness? Yeah. What do you think of toughness? What does that word do for you? Um, I mean, I, I like it. I think it's important. I think, you know, the idea that of, of sort of, you know, I, I like I said, I, I believe in, in empathy and compassion. And I believe in, um, you know, one of the things I, I think I learned in a family with so many kids was to yield, you know, and also just in the church to, to yield to other people when it, when you can, like when it, if it doesn't attack some, you know, deep part of you or, or your integrity or your honesty, you know, it's okay to be like, you know, it's okay. You can, you can make this decision and I can go along with it because there's nothing in me that thinks that this is wrong or bad or, you know what I mean? So like, I think that's, that's important. But I also think that when it does matter, you know, when it is your integrity and your honesty and, and, you know, who you are, that to be tough and to be able to stand up to somebody that you love and say, listen, I can go with you to here, but no further. Um, I think that's also important. That word yield just, I had the image of a a yield sign as opposed to a stop sign. And Uh that word yield just, I, I literally had that image pop up and I literally saw like, all right, and when I'm going to yield, I sort of look around, I take in my surroundings, I make sure that it's okay, and then I keep going uh, versus a stop sign, which is I come to a halt and mm-hmm. I either can choose to keep going or not going. So that that was kind of a cool image I had in my head. Um, share with us what you did after and just uh, if you could sh- sort of share what your purpose is uh, today and, and sort of where you find meaning and, and purpose because you had this life that had all kinds of purpose for you before you left and meaning and um, you, you were on a mission, right? Like it was, um, mm-hmm. I would imagine. All consuming. Yeah, it was very intentional, like what you were doing on a daily basis. And uh, it's very probably clear in a lot of ways, um, uh, simplistic in that sense. But you yeah. leave and now like you're starting over. You're almost an immigrant, right? Like you are, yeah. you're, you're, you're leaving and you don't have a home or a family or um, you know, what, what is your identity? Um, so how yeah. does, what is, what is purpose for you and meaning and, and all that good stuff? Um, so it was really funny. Cause when you left, I, I, I was, we, we were so lost, my sister and I, um, we had no, you know, we had no sense of which way was that, what we were doing. And I, I had all these assumptions about what it meant to be a good, responsible, reliable person. And like, I thought I had to get a job immediately because we had, we had some savings. Um, but I thought I, I I just had all these like terrible visions of, you know, cause the church, we, they, they basically tell you like when you leave, well, now you're subject to the wrath of God. You are one of the children of disobedience and, and, you know, God's wrath is imminent and whatever going to overtake you. And just so the, the sense of like uh, so much fear, um, and you know, the idea, like one of us was going to get like terribly injured, um, 
you know, irrevocably, some kind of cancer or car accident or something. So like all of the, all of that fear was still there. And so like the fact that we had a little bit of money, it was like, we, I still, I need to get a job immediately and start saving for retirement and just all of this, you know, like, again, what did it mean to be a good, responsible person? Um, and I was talking to a friend of mine, a, a girl that I had met while she came to the church um, as a, with a journalist, like a year and a half before. And, you know, she, she, it was really wonderful because she basically, you know, you're asking me about intentionality now, like that's what she was forcing me to think about in that, in that moment. Like anytime I would say something or make some declaration about, she would say, like, why do you think that? Like, what makes you, what makes you feel that way? And is that an accurate, is that an accurate assessment? Um, and so it became this process where every decision, you know, I was, I was making all of my, all of my thoughts, I had to, you know, I would have a knee jerk, you know, instinctive feeling or assumption or idea about something. And then, you know, for about a year, a little over, um, you know, I had to basically just constantly be questioning all of those things and try to actually, you know, independently, newly assess the evidence, um, and come to a new conclusion. That um, that piece for me just resonates because I, I I talk about there are why athletes and yes sir athletes. Um, mm-hmm. So there are why people and yes sir people. Um, mm-hmm. And I often say like the why people could use a little yes sir and the yes sir people could use a little why. Um, but you even mm-hmm. think about the military, historically the military was very much yes sir. Um, but mm-hmm. if you read a lot of books and you sort of hear about a lot of the leaders now, they encourage their guys to know why they're doing what they're doing. And mm-hmm. that leads to more transformational action. And so uh, that's interesting to me that once you started to really ask those tough questions and ask why, uh, going back to the skepticism piece, um, it, it, it started to become crystallized as far as what direction you're going to go in. Right. And, and like the direction for a while was just basically drifting, you know? Um, and, and it wasn't, I mean, it was basically that, that first year, a little over a year, um, before I moved in with my then boyfriend, um, uh, we, my sister and I were just drifting all over the country. Um, and it started, you know, um, the first month or so we stayed with, uh, a cousin of mine, um, who had left three years earlier. Um, and then, but she lives quite close to where we grew up. And, you know, when I, once I got out of, um, Kansas, you know, we, my sister and I went to South Dakota, um, to Deadwood. My brother had been a fan of the TV show. Um, and that's literally like the, I had no roots anywhere or no, you know what I mean? Like, like reason to be anywhere other than Topeka. I just felt like I, I had no idea what we were doing. Um, and so we were going to spend a month in Deadwood reading books, you know, trying to figure out like why, what other people believe and why, and, and like, what does it mean now? Like what, what is good? What is right? You know? Um, so we thought we're going to go read books for a month, like one of our favorite authors. Um, and then we'll go back to Kansas and Grace will go back to school and I'll get a job and we'll figure everything out. But once I, once I was out of Topeka, uh, out of Kansas for a couple of weeks, I just, the idea of going back and, you know, we were running into our family all over town. You know, my sister was in uh, a class with one of our cousins and who was still in the church. And, uh, you know, I was seeing my family at the grocery store and on the picket line, you know, as we're driving past and it, I just needed to get away. Um, so, you know, David, who made that first point on Twitter, 
um, invited us to come speak at the Julicious Festival um, that I had picketed three years earlier. Unbelievable and, that he would he would yeah. have that have that in him. It's just amazing. Yeah. No, I know. And and like we had met we met for the first time when I picketed the Julicious Festival um, in 2010, and then we met again like nine months later at another picket. Uh, we were pick- another. Um, we picketed the Jewish uh, Federations of North America, their general assembly in New Orleans. Um, so I had met him twice before. And, you know, and after he made that, that one point on Twitter, I basically stopped talking to him. And so then after I left, he sent me a, a message on my birthday, just saying happy birthday. And I'm <laughs> like, hey, also, I'm not at the church anymore. And, um, and anyway, it was just, it started this sort of long, you know, conversation. And, and he, he, it's really funny because like I, I wrote about him. He's like the, the end of my book, uh, the last chapter. Each of the chapters in my book is like framed around a relationship. And this relationship, this friendship with David um, is sort of the framework of the last chapter. Because what he did on Twitter was really important. But what he did after we left was, I think, almost even more important. Um, because he sort of like stepped into that vacuum and really, really pushed me to be to be intentional and, and, you know, about what I was doing. And, you know, he, he's the one who taught, he taught me about um, this Jewish concept, tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. And he said, you know, you and your family have added to the brokenness in the world and you have a responsibility to try to, to try to, to repair that. And, and it's, it's everybody's responsibility. It's a, it's a duty and an obligation. And so, like, the way, because of the way that he framed that, um, like, it, it was an obligation. So I couldn't give in to sort of the fear and, you know, self-doubt and just sense of total loss. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't know, I don't know what I would have done exactly if, you know, without, without David. Because when, when we went to the Julicious Festival and we're, you know, actually meeting Jewish people, like, and really, you know, for the first time, really coming to understand who they were and what they believe without the sort of caricature of Jewish people in our minds, you know, that we had learned at the church. Um, it, it was incredibly eye-opening. And, and the fact that people were so kind to us, like I, when I was sitting, you know, sitting at the front of that room with David and my sister and David sort of guiding us through this conversation. And, you know, by at that point we had been gone for like three months and we were just crying, you know, you know, and, and not, not to make a show of it or anything. It was just so raw. And I looked up and there was a woman in the audience that I remembered at, from our picket at the Julicious festival three years earlier. And she had been, so angry and loud and saying like the most terrible things, you know, and those pickets were a little unusual in that like they were, they they were pretty violent. Like people were hitting us and surrounding us individual and individually. And the cops, you know, the police officers were basically just uh, letting them hurt us and not doing anything to stop them. Um, And so to be, you know, sitting in front of that room and like, I look up and I see that girl and, you know, she's crying, you know, listening. It, it just was incredibly healing, not for them, but, but for us, you know, and that gave th- me, was, that gave me chills like that. I felt it on my spine. Like that's, that is, that's just so powerful. It's, it's just, I think we all can relate to times in our lives where we've seen people 
and it hasn't necessarily reflected the best version of ourself um, mm -hmm. that people, other people have brought out maybe the worst in ourselves. And uh, it's just such a powerful thing to be able to flip that on its head and see the world differently. Um, so, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just extremely powerful. Um, yeah. And, and David is the one who, after, you know, after we did that at delicious, he, the next thing we did, we went to um, Montreal and stayed with the Jewish family there for a month. Um, and, they were, uh, you know, we were volunteering at the Jewish Federation and, you know, working on this festival that we were going to be speaking at at the end of the at the end of the month. And again, just meeting so many people with so many different like the Jewish community that we stayed with um, in in L.A. where it was Hasidic. So it was quite very religious. And so it was amazing to talk to them about the Bible and how they saw the world. And then, you know, now, you know, in Montreal, this very essentially quite secular, um, but still, you know, incorporating a lot of these Jewish traditions. And I don't know, it was just, again, incredibly eye-opening. And then, you know, through David, we also started doing these, um, um, like working with, you know, anti-bullying programs and, you know, early child, like childhood, um, like, um, oh gosh, what am I trying to say? Oh man, it just, it's, it's gotten so much broader now though. Um, like we were speaking with, you know, high school students and, and at universities and then also with um, now law enforcement and counterterrorism groups and civil rights groups. And what's, what's your purpose? What, when you think of purpose, what do you, what do you think your purpose is? I mean that, you know, Tikkun Olam, um, I think is such a powerful concept to me. Um, and it's definitely something that, that drives everything that I do. I, I, I feel like, you know, I spent a lot of years doing things that I now, I, I thought they were good, but I now believe were, you know, very harmful to a lot of people. And Westboro has, it's very strange because like in all these places and all these, you know, times that I've, you know, you know, spoken with people all across the country and on also, you know, around the world, like so many people have personal experiences with Westboro because we were so prolific. And now I, I see it as an obligation to, to take those experiences and try to do everything that I can to sow goodness in the world. Um, and I, it's, it's, um, it's definitely been a process of uh, what does that look like? Like how, how to do that? I, I had no idea. My sister and I used to say, you know, we want to do good, but what we have no idea how. Um, and it's just been sort of this, you know, this process has lasted for the last, you know, ever since we left, um, where, you know, people will reach out to us and, you know, they want to understand and they want to, you know, they want to learn from our experiences. And it's been very strange because I feel very hesitant to try to teach other people anything because I, I think, you know, when I was at the church, I was like, here, let me tell you how to live. And now, like, now you guys, now I got this, I got this. Like, now I'll tell you how to live. Right. And, and I, I definitely, I definitely don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to feel like I'm doing that myself. And I don't want other people to think that's what I'm doing. Cause it, cause it isn't. It's just when people, almost everything that I've done, actually the, um, the past few years has been reactive. It's been somebody, you know, like again, wanting to understand or like, you know, wanting to help their, you know, their students understand, or again, these like law enforcement organizations, they, they, they're, they're trying to get into the, into the mindset and, and understand, 
you know, where I was and where I am now and what happened. And, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's really, it's really strange. Um, what the whole thing, what do you, what do you best understand? Like, what is it that you think you have a clear understanding of? Um, my own humanity. And by that, I mean, just the fallibility of like what, what it means to be one of the things my mom said, and it's, this has been my Twitter bio since right after we left. Um, my mom said not long before I left the church, she said, you're just a human being, my dear, sweet child. And I, I keep that as a reminder that of all the things that are going wrong in the world. Um, and you know, and the, the mistakes that we tend to make as human beings, all the, the cognitive flaws that we have, you know, the confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance and, and all these things, the things that, that lead to bad things in the world, like I think generally come from, unless somebody is a legitimate psychopath who actually like have some, you know, flaw in their brains that, that makes them unable to empathize and feel compassion and, and things like that. Um, people are generally trying to do what they believe is right and living the best that they can. And it gives me this sense of, you know, deep humility because I know how, you know, I understand deeply that we can believe something so, so strongly and be so wrong. And so it, it leads me to one, be open to other people's ideas and to try to really hear and consider them in a way that I never used to. Um, um, but it, I think it's just, it's so important to, to look at, at people on all sides of every issue, um, as human beings and try to introduce, you know, generosity and, and grace into the conversation. And not that we should not have any values or, you know, ideas that we, and ideals that we fight for, um, but that we approach other people with the sort of compassion and generosity that that moves us because they also are just human beings. Beautiful. Last question. And um, this one's just more from my own perspective and my own curiosity. Uh, now you're doing a lot of public speaking and I'm curious what you do to set your mind for a, a public speech. And uh, also, are there any similarities between doing that and your experience when you were picketing? <laughs> it's so funny that you say that because yes, there's definitely similarity. And I realized it because um, like we were, my sister and I were um, in Houston and I think we did six events in two days. Wow. Um, it was, it was really nuts. Um, but we, we were getting up early and staying up late and talking to tons of people. And like by the end of the day, like our, you know, my throat was hurting and like, you know, from talking so much and it felt very much like picketing except instead of being, you know, outside and, you know, angry, you know, or, you know what I mean? Like hostile, um, and that kind of aggressive, um, I, it felt so much more like, because again, like some, not, well, anyway, um, it was, there's a lot say? of similarities. Well, <laughs> it's really funny. Cause like some of the things that like, some of the things that we say are not easy for people to hear, Yeah. you know? So it's not that we're just, cause like, I think my family, like they have this idea that, you know, you leave and then you say everything bad about them and everything good about the rest of the world. And then the world will love you. Yay. Like they had this very simplistic notion. 
And like, but like I said, it's not, it's not easy for some people to hear. And, you know, for some people, especially cause like there are people like the, like that, <clears throat> the girl in the audience that I mentioned earlier, like people who, who, who did things that were, you know, also very wrong. Like they were doing it to, I, I understand, you know, I understand that we provoked a lot of, you know, hatefulness and the things that people said and, and did to us, but you know, people, we were physically attacked, you know, not, not rarely. Um, and, you know, people said and did things that they regret. And so people have apologized to me, you know, for, for things that they said, you know, anyway, so what I'm saying is it's not, it's not easy for people to hear everything that, that we're saying. Um, but the fact that, you know, you know, back to, you know, your question about what do I do to prepare for those things? It's, I feel like, in a sense, I'm always preparing all the time because I, just like when I was at, at Westboro, like I think about, I can't help but think about these things all the time, you know, especially, you know, when I was writing this book. Um, and, but, but I just, I think about it all the time because it's obviously made such a, a huge impact on my life and I can't help but see the world from that perspective. And so when I see these, you know, conflicts and the things we were talking about earlier about, you know, having civil dialogue with people we vehemently disagree with. Like that's, it's such a huge thing right now, you know, especially ever since, you know, Trump was um, elected and um, I, I feel really strongly about it. So I'm constantly thinking about it and processing it. And, and I'm the same, you know, when I stand on a stage as I am, you know, when I'm not. And so it's just uh, trying to really honestly engage with, with these ideas and with as many people as possible and as many perspectives as possible. Love it. So I want to give you a platform. You mentioned you're, you're writing a book. Um, I know there's, there's a movie. Um, give us an idea of some of the things you're up to and then also where people can find you if they want to find out more about you and your journey. And uh, I know Twitter is, is obviously a big place for you, <laughs> but um, share social media, share website, yeah. share book, movie. I mean, we, we, All right. We've had to have this conversation. I've been trying to knock on Megan's door. I think when I first started this podcast, um, Megan's name honestly was at the top of my list. And it's not no slouch to any other person I've had on the podcast. But, um, you know, I, I just I think the world of your perspective and there are two people outside of the people that, you know, have helped raise me and help uh, impact my life on a daily basis. There are two strangers that I've met um, over the last couple of years that have had just massive impacts and, and you're one of them. And uh, just this notion of trying to see people and understand where they come from, it's massive. The other one is actually a guy named Kyle Maynard, uh, who is going to be on the podcast uh, you know, right before you. Uh, we just recorded it. So uh, you'll actually go after Kyle and Kyle is a quadruple amputee um, and he was born that way. And he has climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He was uh, a wrestler. He has been in an MMA fight. He is just an amazing human. Um, and wow. so what you taught me is this notion of always try to see people and understand where they're coming from. And Kyle has taught me just this notion of, uh, we have a responsibility to try to create awe in our life and, um, let's leave faith, uh, religious faith on the sideline for now and just talk about the experience of awe. And you talked about earlier feeling goosebumps in your, in your arms. And I talked about chills going up my spine. And I think those are moments of awe. And I think awe can show itself in all kinds of places. And the woman who's crying in the back of the room was experiencing some awe. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so I, 
like he taught me the power of awe and you taught me the power of empathy. And I think if we can live with awe and we can live with empathy, I think that'll be a pretty full life. And there are other parts yeah. of living a full life, but those are two big pieces for me. So I want to thank you. And then I want to give you a platform to promote whatever the heck you want to promote <laughs> um, and just, just go ahead and, and knock it Awesome. Straight. Thank you so much. I, 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 I'm really moved by that. I, I, it's really insane to hear things like that, but I'm, I'm incredibly glad um, that I'm not just out here, you know, talking to the wind and, and being annoying. <laughs> I thought when you were talking about that dinner, like I thought at some point you're going to get so tired of hearing all this stuff or, or that other. Um, well, I'm anyway, super sorry. annoying and curious. So like I, I <laughs> no, it was if, great. If someone's interesting, like, like this conversation, <laughs> trust me, we could talk for another two hours, but I, I have too much respect for your time and we've taken enough <laughs> of it. But trust me, we could go for another two hours. I, I, yeah. you know, as you were talking, I was writing down some questions and I didn't even get to like five of them, but it's, it's neither here nor there. Uh, please please promote whatever it is you're doing and so we can share your purpose with as many people as possible all right Uh, so i'm on twitter um at megan phelps m-e-g-a-n-p-h-e-l-p-s um i did just finish writing a book it probably won't be out until next summer or fall um and right now it's called this above all which is not a title that i love it was just what i put on the book proposal but that's what both the book and the film are tentatively titled right now, but I hope we come up with something better. So if anybody has any better ideas, I'm ready to hear them. Um, hit me up on Twitter. Um, and then, yeah, that's, I, I can't, I mean, um, I think those are probably the, the big things right now. I'm just, um, man. Oh, actually there's actually a national geographic series that I was interviewed for. Um, that's coming out. Um, it's, uh, the story of us with Morgan Freeman. It's coming out in uh, No big deal. Just, just, just the actual God, <laughs> like how most people think of God in this country. Oh, it's just, you know, us with Morgan Freeman, also known as God for a lot of people, the voice of God. Uh, but yeah, not, nothing to yeah. see there. Um, yeah, so crazy. And, and, and your TED Talk, right? Like your TED Talk is yeah. a, uh, yeah, I forgot about you know, that. is massively popular and is an amazing listen. And uh, I think that will also give people a real sense of who Megan is and uh, sort of, Uh, give you, paint that picture for you that we can't do over audio. And I think uh, really see her as a human and not just as voice, like, like the, like Morgan Freeman's God voice. Disembodied voice. Exactly. So uh, Megan, thank you again so much. I know we talked for a while and uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate the relationship that we developed, even if it was for a weekend and uh, uh, look forward to continuing the dialogue and the conversation. And I want to just thank you for opening up people's ears and, and hopefully opening up their hearts. And uh, it's just uh, it's, it's, it, you have a gift and, uh, you know, I think, uh, you are making, uh, uh, what other people would call a mess, your message. And I think that's just, uh, amazingly powerful and, and thank you for sharing your story and, and also your mentality. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I, I'm so, so glad to be in touch. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. He taught me about um, this Jewish concept, tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. And he said, you know, you and your family have added to the brokenness in the world, and you have a responsibility to try to to try to to repair that. And and it's it's everybody's responsibility. It's a it's a duty and an obligation. And so, like the way because of the way that he framed that, um, like it it was an obligation. So I couldn't give in to sort of the fear and, you know, self-doubt and just sense of total loss. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what I would have done exactly if, 
you know, without, without David. <laughs>